Okay, welcome back to the Power Law Podcast. Today we're talking about James Dolan, the creator of the Las Vegas Sphere, who I am obsessed with, just about everyone in technology is obsessed with, and it's a hilarious situation that I just can't get enough of because basically everyone in tech Twitter is looking at these viral videos of this LED sphere and being like, oh yeah, America's back. We can build great things again. This is amazing. This is the future. Uh, who did this? Like they must be such a powerful founder. And then, and then of course, everyone in the sports world knows the history of James Dolan because he owns the New York Knicks and the Islanders, the hockey team, and everyone hates him. Like he is probably the most hated sports owner in like all of American sports. Um, and so slowly tech people are starting to put it together, but there's this interesting tension between what story do you want to believe? Is he this like terrible, you know, mismanager of the sports team that's, he's also like this rich kid who just kind of inherited things? Or is he this like genius futurist building this like really cool like structure in Vegas? And so it's really fun to go back and forth and like kind of decide for yourself. I, I have my own take on this. Um, I, um, and I'll just give it to you up front. I mean, I think ge generally, he, um, I generally think that the, the media might be overweighting how bad he is, and I might be uh, a little more sympathetic to him than than most of the reporting out there. But uh, at the same time, like there's there's a lot of controversy here. His controversy section on his Wikipedia page is like the longest controversy section I, I think I've ever seen. Um, so we're not going to go too deep into all of that, but I'm going to give you an overview of his of his his history. We got to go back to you know his dad because that's the guy who actually created a lot of this empire, and then he kind of inherited it. Then we'll go through the sports and the music and and the reason why I think this is actually. A very interesting story to dig into is because even though he's a public intellectual, not a public intellectual, just like a public figure because he's a public businessman and he owns a sports team so everyone knows about him, uh, he doesn't tweet, he doesn't have any social media, there's no, there's no really like primary material. He's only done a few interviews, very few on YouTube doesn't really do podcasts. Um, there has been some great reporting about him throughout the years since the sports writers have always been covering him because they cover the team and then they wind up covering him. So there's a little bit more than if he was just like a real estate developer guy, but he has a very aggressive stance towards the media. He will blacklist reporters who cover him or the team negatively, and he tries really hard to control the narrative. But like oftentimes this backfires and he gets into weird situations. And I think even he would admit that uh, he's not always 100% on top of like managing the media properly. Um, but I don't really care about how aggressive he is towards people that talk about him because I don't really like sports. And I also think uh, this podcast will be a lot more positive to, towards him than other reporting. Um, and I kind of disagree with some of the negative portrayals based on what I've read. Um, but who knows? Maybe he blacklists me. Maybe I can never go anywhere. That would kind of suck. But I doubt it because I'm going to kind of stand for this guy. He's, he, he's kind of had this like come from behind moment that I love. Um, and I think that there are kind of three key themes that we can trace through this story that are really universal in all of the people that we talk about, this idea of the power law, what it takes to be on that you know, extreme end of value creation. Uh, Dolan understands the monopoly thesis and what everyone in tech is obsessed with better than most people, even in tech. And we'll see that through his strategy, although it manifests in a very, very different way. Instead of building like a network effect like Facebook, he he's much more in the physical world. But I think he really does understand the power of a monopoly and the and the value that it can, re can create because he's seen it at his company and seen it um, in, in his family's, like, you know, as they've accrued this massive, massive empire. And then he also really understands the value of vertical integration and owning the full stack in the entertainment. And we'll see that with some of some of the different holdings and the different structures that he has. Uh, MSG is a really, really complicated entity. So I'm going to try and take you through it as clearly as possible. But there's a lot going on in this like empire. Um, and then also, 
I think th- this is probably the most controversial thing to say, but I think he has a chip on his shoulder because, you know, he's been portrayed as this like rich kid who just had everything handed to him. And I think this has kind of, you know, brought out a certain type of energy that sometimes manifests very, very, in a very positive way. And sometimes it's a little bit negative, but in general, he's he's now working to kind of leave his mark as like an independent business person. Um, his, his LinkedIn profile is very funny. I think he just has one job and it's like, you know, head of Madison square garden or something. And it just says like the date that it start and then to till, to till today. And so he just has one job and he's been doing it for 54 years or something like that. So some insane number of years. Um, and, and yeah, so uh, let's go back through his childhood first, and then we'll take you through some of the business empires, and then we'll work our way towards the sphere, so that you have kind of all of the all of the backstory on how he like built up this empire and what what the, the problems that he's trying to solve with the Vegas sphere. Sphere. My my brother-in-law, we were talking about this, and he keeps saying spear. <laughs> and now that I'm saying it, I was making fun of him, but now that I'm saying it, it's kind of hard to say sphere. Sphere. Um, but yeah, Dolan is always painted as this spoiled rich kid who had everything handed to him. And honestly, it's kind of true. Uh, but he clearly made some really good decisions for the business. And I think that's why he wound up inheriting most of the power and most of the control over the business. Uh, and you'll see this uh, as it goes through that. I mean, he had a ton of brothers and, and siblings. I think there were five siblings that he had. So there was a big question about like who would inherit this. And, and he had to do a lot of creative things to kind of get there. Uh, it really feels like succession. Um, and uh, and it, it's just it's just a fascinating these these media empires when they grow and grow and grow they become these really powerful family businesses that you don't really see that much in tech since most times it becomes like a public company and there's a whole bunch of venture capitalists on the board and it's much more professional it doesn't really get handed down but uh, the the MSG empire is, is completely different so it's very interesting to see how this this corner of the business world that we don't necessarily see in TechCrunch or the information that often, how this works. I had a lot of fun digging into this. I spent like weeks <laughs> reading about this guy. Um, so he grew up on Long Island uh, and as a kid, he learned to sail, which is not crazy expensive. Like I know people that live on Long Island and they sail and they're just kind of upper middle class, um, but he gets really into it, of course, like rich family. Um, he, he, he actually winds up sailing all around the world on these like 70 foot, 12 man sailboats from Cape Town to Rio de Janeiro. And he says that he never drank alcohol when he was actually sailing, because that'd be really, really dangerous. But the culture of sailing basically turned him into an alcoholic. So uh, the, the whole like sailboat yacht culture is around alcohol. You go out on the boat and then you come back in and you get trashed at the yacht club with your pink pants and Izod shirt, he says. And so in summer of 1993, Dolan checks in to uh, a rehab center, an addiction treatment center, and he's been sober ever since. And he he really uses this as like a weapon against so many people. Like if somebody's attacking him, he'll be like, oh, have you been drinking? Because I haven't, <laughs> which is hilarious to me. And then also he... Uh, He'll always, uh, like, he just doesn't care about, like, alcohol sales at the garden, and he uses that as a lever in a bunch of different places. Um, but uh, but we need to go through, like, what actually created all this family wealth. And for that, we got to talk about his dad, Charles Dolan, who goes by Chuck. And the main guy who we're talking about tonight today is uh, James Dolan, who goes by Jim. So we'll try and keep it to... James Dolan, the son, and Charles Dolan, the father. I'll just say Charles Dolan as much as possible. Uh, so Charles Dolan is the founder of Cablevision and actually HBO, home box office, the you know the, the network that's absolutely huge now. But uh, HBO has been sold a bunch. Cablevision has an interesting story, and they 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 ran that business for a very very long time until they until they sold it just uh, I think just a couple of years ago actually. Um, so back in the mid 1960s, Charles Dolan, which is James Dolan's father, uh, built a cable system called Sterling Manhattan Cable, and. He had an earlier venture called Teleguide. This guy was just like a serial entrepreneur, just constantly um, starting companies. And they were very interesting to see how like TV networks and media worked in the 60s. So uh, they would have like 
tourist information that would be sent over to different places in New York City, like hotels and anywhere where tourists might be. And then there'd be closed circuit TV. So you'd see a TV and it would just say like, do you want to visit the Statue of Liberty? Like go here. And he was basically just like selling digital ads, but like in the sixties, like well before anything like that existed. Um, and so from there he understands like, okay, piping, you know, information, video content from one place to another. This is valuable in one way or another. And so uh, in September of 1996, or 1966, Sterling Information Services, Dolan's company, began Manhattan Cable TV Service, uh, the first underground cable system in the United States. And they, and it's interesting because, you know, we think of uh, underground cable, like cable TV, as very obvious. I have, I've always just taken it. It's always been around since I was a kid. Um, but the reason that they actually use underground cables instead of like telephone wires is because of these New York City regulations at the time. And they needed to ensure reliable reception in Manhattan where there's all these tall buildings. And so uh, he partners up with Time Life Incorporated, which is now Time Time Magazine and then eventually Time Warner. And you know it's become this like massive conglomerate. There's the AO, AOL Time Warner uh, saga, uh, which I'm sure we'll talk about at some point. But uh, the company struggled financially due to the high cost of putting these wires in the ground and then low subscriber numbers because it was a completely new thing to get cable TV. Not a lot of people wanted it and the CapEx was so, so high. So in 1969, um, like he kind of merges these companies together. Time gets more of a stake in Sterling Communications. And then um, in order to make the the these these cable TV subscriptions that he's trying to sell more profitable, he comes up with the idea of a TV ch of a new cable specific TV channel while on vacation in 1971. He refers to this concept as the green channel and it would offer movies and live sports without advertising interruptions for a monthly fee. And this is the start of HBO. So he basically like start like HBO is, is, is to a product that's created to solve his own problem. Like he has put the wires in the ground, now he needs content, so he just starts a content network. Um, and basically he, you know, he starts, he, like this This kind of saves the company, I think. It kind of gets things going. And uh, But the 70s are still really, really hard. There's a whole bunch of challenges. There's a lot of regulatory scrutiny about like, where are you building? Where are you digging? Is this dangerous? Um, and then there's a lot of competition with the major broadcast networks because everyone can just have those like rabbit ears that go, the antenna that go on top of the, on top of the uh, TV and get TV for free, basically. So why would you pay for cable? It, like the value prop needs to be really, really strong. And HBO kind of solved that, but uh, it took a long time to get there. And um, basically, like you know, pre there had been previous attempts at launching paid TV in the U in the United States, um, but there was a lot of competition from movie theater chains. This is like the height of going to the theater. Um, obviously, people weren't really that interested in it. It was a new thing. It was very expensive, and there were a lot of FCC regulations, but. So uh, Time Life's management, they are initially reluctant about Charles Dolan's proposal for the HBO thing, but then eventually they agreed to support the Green Channel project. And he uses money from starting, from selling his first company. So he, sell, he sells a bunch of assets to uh, Time, and then he uses that money to start Cablevision, which is his the actual cable TV network that he scales over the next like 40 years. And uh, this is a very interesting story of just like building a monopoly business. So there's Do uh, Charles Dolan was one of three applicants to be awarded cable franchise permits by the city of New York. And so he sells cable TV to New York and Long Island, and it's a total monopoly business. You can see there's some numbers that I think leaked or, or they were publicized in 2014. So they're way out of date, but um, they're still instructive. Like they were making $6 billion in revenue. I think they had like 3 million subscribers, like not that many people on the actual network. Um, but they were pulling down a billion dollars in operating income, 300 million of net income. And this basically just pays for everything else the family does. So if you want to buy a sports team for a, for a billion dollars, that sounds like a lot of money. But when you have this cash machine that's throwing off $300 million a year, it's like, okay, save up for three years and then you can afford it. Uh, so this is just like, you know, this absolute 
money-making machine because once you lay the wires in the ground, people, people have to pay you if they want to use them. There's no competition. And so you just wind up printing money. And the cables have been in the ground for 40 years. So there's not much CapEx any, anymore. And it's all just basically pure profit. And you can see that with, you know, the really, really high, you know, really solid operating income margins and really high and, and solid net, net margins as well. So there is a turning point. That's in around the turn of the millennium, there's, you know, the Dolans and Charles Dolan is thinking like, okay, we've built up this cable TV empire. What's next? And there was a lot of talk at the time that maybe satellite TV would be extremely disruptive because if you can just pull down whatever you want from the sky, you don't need to rely on the monopoly that exists in the cables in the ground. And so if DirecTV or Dish Network can show up and just put a satellite dish on your roof and then all of a sudden you don't have to deal with whoever wired the cable to you, you can cut out Charles Dolan and Cablevision or whatever your cable provider is. And so Charles Dolan, I, it, it feels like he was very scared about this. Like he, he saw this as like a kind of an existential threat because he winds up investing really, really seriously in getting into the satellite TV game. And But James Dolan doesn't think that that's important. And so they get in this fight, uh, but they, so basically the company starts this project called Voom in 2003. Uh, Dish Network had already been operating for years. Um, I think DirecTV started in 1994 and Dish in 1996. And th there's this wedge because the the Dolans are, Charles Dolan's trying to pick like which of his sons will take over the Cablevision empire. And so James Dolan is fighting with him saying like, we don't need to go into satellite TV. We got a good thing going with cable. Let's just keep doing what we're doing there and then go into, you know, sports and entertainment and all these other fun things that he wants to do. Uh, he, James Dolan has a brother, Tom, and Tom is you know, cozying up to Charles, the dad, and saying, you know, hey, yeah, let's do this satellite thing. And so they have this, there's this dramatic board dinner at this restaurant that also has a gun range downstairs, which I didn't even know you could do. I think this is in New York. It, it feels very like mafia-esque. Um, but basically the whole board goes there. There's this like really intense situation. There's this question about like, who's going to win? Everyone's arguing their points. It's very succession showdown. His soprano is like, and the board winds up going with Charles, the dad, and saying, you know what, James Dolan, he made his case that satellite's not important, but we're going we're, we're, we're gonna to give it a try. So they fund that satellite project. And Charles and Tom, the other brother, gets they get really close and they start working on this project. They go down to Cape Canaveral to watch the, the rocket launches because they actually have to put up a physical satellite above the United States. Um, but the project fails. Uh, the internet was just a bigger opportunity and people didn't really need to switch to satellite TV. There were already two big satellite TV providers and obviously the future was just the internet. Um, and so the satellite project lost $600 million in a single year and the division shut down in 2005 and they sold that satellite to Echo Star Communications, which owns Dish for $200 million. So they recovered some money, but they lost a lot. And so at this point, James Dolan is kind of like proven correct. Like he predicted that this business venture was going to fail and he's got some good business savvy. So it seems like he is slowly getting tapped for inheriting the empire. Um, but again, like he's had a lot of unfair opportunities. And this is why I think the sphere the Sphere project is so interesting because it's all him and it's it, it doesn't involve any of his other family members and he's taking this like massive risk with it, putting a lot of capital at risk. And so, um, you know, there's five siblings kind of fighting for control at various levels of this media empire. Uh, and it's always interesting when someone can control it, can retain control of a multi-billion dollar empire for so long. It opens up all these weird opportunities um, because you just have all this cash and, uh, and so much control. Um, and so weird things happen. Like if you want, if you just think it's cool to have a sports team, you can just get a sports team. <laughs> And so Cablevision has this monopoly and it's throwing off tons of cash. And then Charles Dolan buys Madison Square Garden and he basically lets his son, James Dolan, just run the show there. And so in 1994, Cablevision buys half of Madison Square Garden. And then in 1997, they buy the other half. And now Madison Square Garden is, is, is like separated into all these different 
entities. Some of them trade publicly, some of them are private. There's MSG Network, which is the radio and TV network that focuses on the sports teams. And then they basically just have two main structures, MSG Sports and MSG uh, Madison Square Garden Entertainment Corporation. So MSG Sports spun off in 2010, and MSG Sports owns the Knicks, the Rangers, and some of the farm teams, like the junior league teams. Um, and then Madison Square Garden Entertainment is the public company as well, and and uh, and they own the Garden, the Sphere, and all the physical venues. And the interestingly, like the financial structure and voting structure is the same for both of these entities, but they trade independently. They, they both have different stock tickers. Um, so. They're both public companies, but but uh, the Dolans have 70% voting control, and then Silver Lake owns 10%, the private equity firm. Um, and so they the, the Dolans only have 20% economic stake, but they have 70% voting control, so they can basically do whatever they want. And there's a bunch of interesting things that happen kind of downstream of this. So even though the Dolans own, you know, Madison Square Garden and the Knicks, and it's this really cool, like fancy venue where all the celebrities come and, you know, sit courtside to watch the basketball games. Dolan is actually more obsessed with a smaller venue, Radio City Music Hall, um, because there they have a show, like this Christmas spectacular that's hosted by the Rockettes, those girls that like dance. Um, and, uh, and, with the Radio City Music Hall and the Rockettes, they're basically fully vertically integrated. So uh, Madison Square Garden, the company, owns both the, both the venue and the show. So they get to keep way more of the profits and they don't need to pay out as much. So um, the way that James Dolan thinks about you know improving the economics of the venue business is to own the content to keep as many aspects of the operation as possible directly under his control. His inspiration was the Christmas Spectacular performed each year by the Rockettes at Radio City Music Hall. And so this will be, uh, so a little more on the, the Christmas Spectacular. In its, in its annual seven-week run, the show pushes over a million people through the building. And because we own both sides of the equation, all the revenue comes to us and that sustains Radio City Music Hall. And so um, sports is more complicated, but because he's done a decent job of making there, basically uh, m making money there, basically everyone in the sports world hates him. And this, th this theory of uh, you know, vertical integration we've seen with Cablevision, you know, he understands the power of like having the monopoly on the physical thing in the ground that only you have and we'll go more into that later. Um, and with sports, um, he's he's kind of been you know fighting to to get to that you know monopoly business with high margins. And so the sphere is 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 going to wind up leveraging both of these ideas. Um, there's actually an interesting uh, moment in this story where during the Olympic bid, I think New York was going to build another stadium and James Dolan comes out and all of a sudden he's, you know, Mr. NIMBY saying, oh, this is going to cause so much traffic and we shouldn't do this and it's bad for the environment. And it's dangerous. And all of a sudden he's like, you know, aligned with all of these like kind of nonprofits who are not typically on the side of billionaires. <laughs> and the reason is because he just, he wants to maintain that monopoly on the premier sports venue. And if all of a sudden Manhattan has this incredible new Olympic stadium, well then there'll be, you know, a lot of, a lot of emphasis for musicians to go play there instead of the garden or a new sports team could move there and pull money, pull money away from Madison Square Garden. And so he really understands the value of having, you know, a monopoly on a scarce resource. Um, but again, the, the big reason why I wanted to uh, dig into this is because of the fact that no tech people really understand how hated he is in sports because a lot of tech people just don't follow sports. Um, but uh, there's a bunch of really interesting stories. And, and I mean, we could talk for hours. There's actually a great podcast on his sports career called Reign of Error by Wondery. It's like five hours, just mostly focused on the on his on his career with the Knicks. Um but uh, the best example and what they opened the podcast with is probably from 2012. And so uh, in February of 2012, Jeremy Lin has this breakout success. And Jeremy Lin was a Harvard graduate, Taiwanese-American who uh, was sleeping on a couch. He's like the third backup point guard. 
And he's just an absolute nobody, but he just comes out of nowhere and just scores tons of points. He scored 38 points against Kobe. And there's this whole moment of Lynn sanity where everyone gets obsessed with him and people are buying jerseys that aren't even Knicks fans. And so there's this moment where it's like, okay, we have this new, you know, Jeremy Lin character who we just lucked into. We didn't have to pay a bunch to draft him or we don't have to give up anything. We can just sign him um, and he'll be fantastic for the team. Uh, but James Dolan doesn't sign him. And so everyone's like, oh, you're such an idiot. Like you should have signed him. Um, but it's kind of an interesting question because the Knicks did have contracts in place for other point guards and and Jeremy Lin got a big contract with the, I think the Houston Rockets. And then there's also a question of like, you know, Jeremy Lin did not go on to become like a Hall of Famer player. He kind of bounced around, played on a bunch of different teams. So like with the with the benefit of hindsight, it's possible that that was actually a good decision not to sign him. Obviously, you know, the best case scenario would have been, you know, Jeremy Lin goes on to have a wonderful career and maybe it's with the Knicks and everyone does well, but um, it doesn't seem like Jeremy Lin became a, you know, a, a fantastic generational, you know, sensational basketball player. Um, but I don't really know that much about it because I don't follow this stuff. Um, but James Dolan, this is just an example of like this hands-on approach. He like really digs into stuff and he directly intervenes and like he probably decided, you know, even though he has a general manager and a coach, he's still in in the conversation for everything that he does. And this manifests later with the sphere. Um, you know, he he actually goes in and is working on the construction site and stuff and overseeing all sorts of different things, just like this maniacal control freak. And um, and I think that's probably like the only way he's kept this empire together because if he was any more like laissez-faire about things um, it would probably fall apart um, just because there's so much there, there's so many different factions and 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 ability to to just like lose the economic prowess that comes from these assets um, but in general the Knicks it's interesting because he's known as this like failure and everyone chants like sell the team and everyone like really hates him in sports. But, um, and uh, kind of for good reason, because if you're a Knicks fan, you're not really happy with the performance. They've only made the playoffs three times from 2004 to 2020. Um, and they've had over a dozen head coaches since the late nineties when James Dolan took over. And so there's just like no stability. They hired Phil Jackson to turn things around, who was obviously with the bulls and then also the Lakers and has like, I think like nine or 10 championship rings, something crazy. And even Phil Jackson couldn't like fix things in 2014. Um, and then also there was this like altercation between James Dolan and the former Knicks player, Charles Oakley, uh, where he was, Charles Oakley was at Madison Square Garden and the security like kicked him out and Oakley got arrested. And there was this big fallout between Oakley and Dolan and everyone was like, what are you doing? We love this guy. Why are you kicking him out? Like very, very controversial. Um, and the Knicks, they, they have one of the highest payrolls in the NBA, but they just haven't really made an impact on the court. And so, you know, I mentioned it at the top, but like James Dolan's uh, his controversy section on Wikipedia might be the longest I've ever read. It's just one thing after another. But a lot of this comes down to like what happens with the actual team and what's and what's going on on the sports. Like he had a he had a he had a battle with like he had an issue with Isaiah Thomas, this you know really really famous basketball player who he brought in to coach the team and work on the team. And then he also had an issue with Spike Lee. And then he's also banned fans for. Um, for chanting sell the team or if you show if you uh, wear a shirt that says sell the team or like the Knicks suck like you, you you'll get kicked out um, and and his justification is like very kind of odd for this basically he says that Madison Square Garden has a zero tolerance policy for the harassment of employees and because James Dolan is technically an employee you can't like say anything mean about him which is kind of funny. I, I, I guess it makes sense. Um, but he also goes like way further than other people might. Like he uses facial recognition to kick people out. Um, and so if you're a lawyer and your firm is suing him, you will not be able to attend Madison Square Garden or any of the properties that he owns, including like the Rockettes show. And there was this famous, uh, famous story that really blew up in his face where he was running this system where if your law firm was suing him, you wouldn't be able to go. And so this woman who was going 
traveling with a Girl Scout troop to see the Christmas Spectacular at the Rockettes at Radio City Music Hall, shows up, and all of a sudden she can't go in because she works for some, you know, mid-sized law firm in New Jersey that does like slip and fall cases. And and her law firm is suing one some company that James Dolan owns that's like very small. And there's like 50 lawyers here. And so it's just a really bad look because it's like oh, this big mean billionaire is like ruining the lives of like Girl Scouts. And it's just like such a bad, uh, such a bad PR disaster. And the weirdest thing from my perspective is like, I don't know why he needs to use facial recognition for this. Like the name is on the ticket. You could just match the name and then just say like, look, we're banning people based on names. And no one would be like, oh, this is dystopian or bizarre. But because they're using facial recognition, it's like, oh, this is this is the panopticon. This is, you know, Black Mirror. Um, and so it's just like, I, I don't think he really cares about the PR, honestly. Um, but, uh, yeah, very, very, very odd. And so he has this whole rating system for people that enter the garden from like zero to five, where if you're zero, you don't get let in. If you're five, you, it, it doesn't quite go linearly. I think one is VIP and then two is like, we're tracking you. Three is we're tracking you and we're going to let you know that we're tracking you. Like we're going to show you that we're, we're tracking you around the court or around the the garden and then i think like one of them is like we're going to kick you out at some point but we're going to make a scene out of it or something it's like it's, it's very silly and obviously everyone calls it like very petty but um you know i don't know he can do whatever he wants i guess and um but um it's interesting because like the, I have this big question about like, why can't he solve the problem of the Knicks? Like he has all the resources, all the money. He's been able to pull in Phil Jackson and all these great players. Um, and, and my theory, I don't know, this is very half-baked. I need to talk to some like actual people that understand sports, but I think he might just not be that authentically into sports. Like he might enjoy running the garden, but he, it doesn't seem like he ever really played sports. It seemed like he was more passionate about music. He went to an art school for college and he has this band um, and he takes the band stuff really, really seriously. Like it's called JD and the Straight Shot. James Dolan in the straight shot and he has all these crazy songs where if something happens in his life he will record a whole song about it so he has this he was he was friends with Harvey Weinstein the the former Hollywood producer and convicted sex offender and he wrote this song in 2018 called I should have known and then in 2019 he writes this song The Great Divide um, all about his distrust his distrust of the press uh, and it says, in the morning, I get the news so hard to know, know what's true. And he has, he always writes all these songs about the drama in his life, which is kind of hilarious, honestly. Um, he wrote a cover of Born to Run, uh, but changed the lyrics to I'm Chuck Dolan's son. And and he he just has like, he, like if it's like a company event, he'll write a song and perform. And he takes this stuff really seriously. Like he'll be, he'll be touring. <laughs> And, and his band will be flying on a private jet. And then like the actual like headliner will be like on a bus. <laughs> and he hired Axl Rose's uh, vocal co coach, who I think is the lead singer of Guns N' Roses. Um, he doesn't drink and he hires like the top tier performers to tour with him. But you can't really buy success here. Um, but just the amount of time that he pours into his tours, you can tell that this is what he really cares about. And I think that's why he's doing the Sphere as a concert venue instead of a sports arena because it's easier to keep it full and also like the vertical integration thing. So Dolan is always, you know, he's, he's, he's messy with his public image, but he's still behind the scenes to the point where most people in tech didn't know that he had this controversial sports past. Um, and he's not a total lightning rod because he just doesn't give that much to the press. He doesn't do that many interviews. And so um, there's this interesting thing with the with the Sphere where um, you, the, the, the headliner that opened at the Sphere is U2. And Dolan in 2020 supported Donald Trump. And U2 was, is like on record on multiple occasions, like calling out Trump on stage. Like clearly like they hate Trump. Dolan supports Trump. But it wasn't a big enough issue for you two to be like, we don't want to do business with this guy. And so I think Dolan is like, he's 
really good at li- riding the line to being like, I will get terrible press and do like crazy things, but it won't affect the business or at least like, you know, and, and, and that's the whole story with like the, the Madison Square Garden and the Knicks stuff is like, he has all these controversies and, and the fans are so upset, but they keep buying tickets and tickets to the garden are super expensive. And all the celebrities pay so much money to sit courtside. It's because like at the end of the day, they just enjoy the entertainment and it doesn't really matter that there's this crazy guy, James Dolan, who's in the tabloids every once in a while. Uh, most of that stuff fades because he's not constantly in the press. It's just like once every few years, there's like some drama and then it, fa- and then it fades. So let's talk about the sphere now because um, that is the reason I got into all of this. This is why I was so, so interested in, in this whole story. Um, it, it features 700,000 square feet of programmable video screens. <laughs> um, uh, it's like, yeah, multiple football fields. I'm sure you've seen videos of it on Instagram or TikTok or Twitter or something like that. But um, And people, it's interesting the way the media talks about it because a lot of people are highlighting like, oh, there were budget overruns and delays, but it wasn't that delayed. Like they started in 2019 and it was done in 2023 and they're playing shows there now. Four years to build kind of a mega project like that isn't that bad. Um, And obviously the impact that they've had has just been incredible. Like Dolan mapped this out on a napkin, came up with this idea. And now, you know, it's everyone is posting videos anytime they go to Vegas when they see it because it has all these crazy graphics on on top of it. I always see like the the emoji smiley face like going viral. It was just on the complex um, Instagram page like two days ago. Um, and so the the just the, the U2 is headlining as we mentioned and um, it took two years to kind of create all the all the visuals and plan everything out and the and the show will make $270 million, which is a ton for a residency like that. I mean, and it's also really luxurious for you too because they don't have to actually tour. They just get to go hang out in Vegas for like, I think it's like four months. It's not that long. Um, so a little bit of history on the U2 uh, show and the residency. In fall of 2021, the band was approached to open the $2.3 billion mega structure with a capacity of 18,000 people. So it's a little bit smaller than most concert venues. I mean, uh, Taylor Swift was playing SoFi Stadium. I think the stadium holds like 60, 70, 80,000. Um, so it's much smaller but obviously it's a much more intimate experience then because everyone gets a really front row seat. And uh, the sphere has this weird dynamic where the higher, even if you're in like the nosebleeds, quote unquote, and you're like really, really high up, you don't necessarily um, have a bad view because you get to see this incredible screen. Um, and so uh, uh, Willie Williams, who's U2's creative director since the 1980s, um, thought that it was a terrible idea. Like he, he did not think this was going to work. Um, and it's because um, U2's iconic tours have been breakthrough custom sets uh, from Zoo TV in the early 1990s to the 360 tour of the late 2000s where they had a 360 degree stage for stadium shows. And they weren't, they didn't like the idea of having so many constraints around the sphere's requirements, um, especially to be like the one who opened it. There were a lot of, you know, risks to being the first, the first band to play there. Um, And, uh, it's, I mean, it's the largest LED s- screen ever. Um, but the idea of a residency instead of a moving tour appealed to U2 because of COVID travel uncertainty. So when they were booking this in early 2021, there was still a question over, okay, well, what if COVID comes like ro- roaring back? Well, Las Vegas is still probably going to be open and U2 won't get, ha- won't have to deal with any flight delays or anything. So um, they, they had to solve a bunch of problems. One was that dome-shaped buildings are typically awful for audio, um, but the Sphere solved the issue with 167,000 speakers. That's a lot of speakers, um, including one in each seat. And so they they claim that every person is getting studio quality sound, um, and and they also claim that every every seat can hear like a different language if they're playing a movie. I don't know how real that is. Um, that seems like there would be a lot of bleed over and it would be a lot of confusion and they'd be more likely to be like, this is the Spanish section. This is the Chinese section. This is the English section. Um, because if you're actually listening to, you know, English and then 
people on either side are listening to different languages, I feel like there'd be some bleed over, but um, they're really, they're really pumping this stuff. And there's a lot of, I mean, as much as I love the sphere and I'm, I'm definitely going to go see it and I think it's really cool. There's a lot of stuff that looks just like, oh, cr- like super cringe, like marketing stuff. Like they, they have this like robot there that's like AI and it's, and it's just like completely animatronic. It's not actually, it's not even like a Boston Dynamics level robot. It can't actually like move around independently. Everything's pre-choreographed. So you're basically just, it just has a script that says like, welcome to the sphere. And it's its more like what you'd see at Disneyland than what, you know, Tesla is working on. And so, but of course, like they're marketing it as like the most advanced AI. And it's like, I was reading the docs and it's just like, oh, we have a Python API. <laughs> it's like, okay, so I, I can... Uh, like they, they don't even use the right term. Instead of an API, they say we have a Python IDE, an integrated develop environment, which is like not the right term for that. It just feels like there were a lot of just like marketing people involved in that whole thing. Um, they're definitely like pushing the marketing angle a lot. Uh, so on the technology side, it's like, you know, I'll, I'll believe it when I see it. Uh, but the the LED screen, at least, it does seem truly top tier and it seems like they, they they solved a lot of a lot of hard problems especially with like heat dissipation just running that much that that big of a screen in the hot desert sun like continually seems very very hard um and uh, I, I saw some people on Twitter like breaking down like what what it takes to like you know remove all the waste heat and all the different all the different things that they need to do to keep the keep the actual venue cool during a show when it's 110 degrees outside beating down on that thing um but uh, yeah, so basically when when a show happens, they bring in, you know, all these top creatives to, you know, actually build out the visuals. Um, Brian Eno, that's cool, was was uh, involved in that. He's a you know, musician, producer. Um, and they... Uh, the amount of data, we'll give you some stats here, uh, you know, 268 million pixels, the equivalent of 72 HDTVs, which is, does not sound that much, uh, <laughs> 12K screen reg- resolution. Like that's really not that much. All that matters is that it's really, really big. Uh, the, the, key, the key thing is not that they're actually putting that many pixels up there. The, the big numbers don't matter. What, what matters is just, are you at a retina distance so that you don't see a screen door effect? And so if you're looking at something super up close, like a VR headset, that needs to be 4K right there because it's right in front of your eyes or else you'll start seeing the pixels. Um, but as you get further away, you you don't need as many as like the, the, the amount of pixels that you need doesn't scale linearly. Um, and that's why a lot of movies even today are shot in like 2k, not, not 4k and it's fine. And it's a huge screen because you're sitting so far away. And so for this, you're, you're sitting back, you know, probably like, I think, I think the whole thing's like 300 feet tall. So you're probably sitting back like a hundred feet from the screen. And if you're on the strip, you're probably sitting, you're, 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 you might be like a quarter mile away. So it doesn't matter that, um, it, it, it all, it all fades together, even though there aren't that many, uh, actual pixels. Although of course, 268 million sounds like a lot. Um, and, uh, um, so the, Going into you know the, the the U two show a little bit more. Um, there's some math. Twenty five dates, eighteen hundred people per show, six hundred dollars per ticket. The range is four hundred to fourteen hundred, two hundred seventy million dollars. And uh, the entire U two team like they made this risky bet, but the viral clips and buzz from the opening AI show has paid off big time. And I think that they're doing some sort of like dynamic pricing because when you look for the tickets, like they can go way up. And all of the even I, I imagine that it was actually probably pretty cheap to buy you know, tickets before it went mega viral. But now that everyone's posting about this constantly, um, there's a lot more attention on it. And I bet the, I bet the tickets are more expensive. Um, the interesting thing about the sphere obviously is like, we, we need to come back to Dolan's like three key, you know, business strategies, the things that drive him. Like one is that he wants a monopoly. Two is he wants that vertical integration. He wants to be able to maximize the value that he gets from the asset. And then three is he has that chip on the shoulder. So um, they also do a lot of advertising deals for the ex- for the outside of the sphere. 
And so it's it's $450,000 for the day or $650,000 for the week. Um, and you get to work with uh, Madison Square Garden's 300 plus designers on the, cre- on the creative and they estimate 5 million daily impressions, 300K in person and 4 million on social media. Obviously this is like highly, highly dependent on how good <laughs> the thing that you put on the sphere is. It helps if you have a spherical product to sell. I, w- I went on their Instagram and I saw they, they did an ad for Mortal Kombat, this new video game. And it did not look good at all. It just looked like they put a TV ad on the sphere because it's not a spherical product. And so the things like that, that silly emoji with the happy face and the eyes, that goes viral every single time. Every time they put up a tennis ball or a basketball or something spherical, like I'm sure if Disney, when they launch a new Star Wars movie, if they put the Death Star on there, like that's gonna go mega viral. But if you just project like, you know, some promo spot for a reality TV show, it's just gonna look like a big billboard and it won't actually utilize what's so good about the sphere, which is like it's spherical. So um, really, really high variance in the value that comes from those ads. But nevertheless, um, people, when they saw this number 450K for the day or 650 for the week, uh, people kind of assumed that that was a buyout. It's definitely not. What it means is that you're getting shown in a, in a, in a, sequence of videos they display on the sphere. So um, they have a whole bunch of, of, you know, stock images that look really good. Things like, you know, cool swirling graphics, obviously that emoji one, the basketball, all the fun things that people expect to see. So if you stand there for, you know, a couple minutes or an, or an hour, like you might see a loop. And one of those things that you'll see in that sequence is an ad. Um, so they might be selling a lot of these, like 450 for the day, might not be, you're not the only ad of that day. And so that is a place where they, you know, that Dolan really wants to uh, recoup some of the cost, $2.3 billion. But now that it's built, hopefully, you know, it's just cash flow from here on out. And those advertising rates will increase over time as, you know, uh, inflation and all sorts of different things kick in um, and people get more comfortable buying them. Although obviously there's like a crazy premium right now because uh, if you're the first person to advertise, uh, you know, uh, you know, a, a tequila on the sphere, like you'll go viral because you're the only person that did that. Um, but you know, in two, in two years, people will just be, ah, oh, another sphere clip. I don't want to see this. I'm bored of this. Um, but nevertheless, like it is, it is hard to ignore if you're actually in Vegas. And so, uh, it'll probably be a, a, a premier advertising venue for a very, very long time. Um, and so, um, in terms of monopoly, I mean, in, in, in tech, we often think of, you know, monopolies as, Things like Facebook, where you have a network effect. But I think the Dolan's see monopoly is a little bit, a little bit smaller. It's just like a cornered resource. So um, with like they don't have a monopoly on amazing entertainment venues in Las Vegas. Obviously, there are a lot of those. Every hotel has a place where you know an, uh, an artist can play, and there are residencies for like Britney Spears and Adele and Usher's doing a residency right now. Um, but what he has is a monopoly on this particular structure. Like it's going to be very hard to top it anywhere for years and years. And there's a few structural reasons for that. Like one is. It's just what could be better than a sphere? Like a sphere is very, very unique. Every other building is square, cubed, um, and there are no buildings that are spherical, really. And so this is the first one. So it'll be hard for someone to copy it, especially in Las Vegas. Like even if you had the money, you wouldn't want to go build another exact copy because everyone would just be like, oh, this is derivative and boring. Um, so you could build like a bigger one maybe. Um, and maybe somebody will do that in a different in a different city. Uh, there were a lot of people tweeting when this like kind of went viral that, oh, we need, well, you need a sphere in every single city. But it, it is it is significantly difficult to to build these things. He originally wanted to build in Manhattan, but couldn't do that. And then I think he was planning on building one in London as well, but that one's really, really delayed. And so, um, you know, just having just having a monopoly on like the coolest venue in Las Vegas is extremely valuable. Um, and then also, 
the so, the so so the monopoly is kind of like the first thing that I think Dolan you know processes. Vertical integration is the second one, and obviously with U two, you know that two hundred seventy million dollars that the Sphere is making from the U two show, I'm sure a lot of that goes to U two. Um, but he also has a Darren Aronofsky film, the guy who did Black Swan and. Uh, what's that other movie? It's uh, the Requiem for a Dream and a bunch of other kind of like scary thriller type movies. Um, so this movie producer and director uh, made a film called Postcard to Earth or Postcard from Earth. And it's a 50 minute movie that takes you into the reaches of space with this wraparound science fiction narrative that's apropos of the spheres wraparound screen, as they say. Um, and basically they pay to develop this show once and then they can sell it again and again and again. And I'm sure the a lot of the creatives on the on the project, they get some sort of kickback, but a lot of the value accrues to um, to Dolan and the Sphere kind of shareholders. And so uh, this is really important in a world where so many experiences are flat and experienced at home and no one really goes to the movies anymore. And actually having an asset that's so unique and so powerful that you have to get out of your house and go to Las Vegas and see it. And I 100% am going to go and see Postcard from Earth. And then they're going to build out a whole bunch of these. And it'll be like kind of a new a new IMAX where um, IMAX for a while had a whole series of films built out that were essentially like planet Earth. So they had one about dinosaurs and one about whales and one about, you know, all sorts of different animals. Um, and you could see them at like like space museums or something like that. Um, but uh, these are obviously really expensive to create. But then once they do, Dolan reaps uh, like reaps the rewards over and over and over again. And then the last thing that I think kind of drives Dolan is this chip on the shoulder. Like it's it's rare because he is he he is you know very fortunate to be born in with you know the, as the heir to this massive empire. But it's clear that he wanted to like re-raise the stakes. He wanted to bring risk back into his life, and he wanted. He wanted something that was all his own. And so he draws the sphere on this napkin and then he just goes and do, does it. And the results are just incredible. He got it done in a few years and so many of these mega projects are, get bogged down and take decades. And it's interesting because there's this there's this story that's in the news right now about the Fontainebleau opening in Vegas. And that one took 16 years to build. It's like this massive hotel structure. Um, and I mean, it, it, it probably is is more ambitious or, 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 or there's a good reason why it took so long to build. but. Um, I think that the people saying like, oh, the sphere went over budget or it's it took too long to build, I, I think that they're probably being a little bit too difficult. It, it, it's it's very impressive to me that this was done. And there were no, like when, when I first saw the video go viral of the sphere, I was just thinking like, how did this not get denied? Like how were there not protests? There are so many people who see this and think like, like I, I think it's really cool. I think it looks awesome. And I think it's perfect for Vegas. But there's so many people who saw it and were like, this is an abomination. This is so distracting. This is bad, blah, blah, blah. And and usually it's like all it takes is a few of those people to go and make some noise at City Hall and block the thing from getting built. It's just so impressive that this actually happened. I don't know how they're gonna do it in London. I feel like in London they're gonna really, really push back against this. Um, but it's a... Uh, yeah, it's just a, it's just a fascinating story, and a lot of people are kind of heralding it as like, okay, America's back because this is the biggest LED structure in the world, and you always see those videos of like, oh, look at Shanghai and China, it's so futuristic there, and they have like these trains that go through buildings and these high skyscrapers, and like America doesn't build like this. And look at Dubai, Dubai is building all these cool things, and the line in Saudi Arabia, and all that stuff's cool, but you know, it's like. This is a huge win. This is just, it's just cool to see this thing. And it's like, yeah, this got built like during COVID at this time when people thought like, you know, America was falling behind and we just did it. And it's, this is really fun. And I hope there's more, more things like this. Uh, and there's this great closer to the James Dolan story uh, from uh, a, a New York Times profile that I'll read here. Um, As the new business ramps up, he will be traveling west a few times a month for the foreseeable future. Uh, apparently in Dolan's office, 
this, he has a video screen that was just a CCTV footage, uh, like a feed directly from the project. And he was just able to watch the sphere get built and then eventually just display whatever graphics it has on it. So he can just watch it at all times. He's like obsessed with it. Uh, but it's interesting because he obviously put it in Vegas, but he says Vegas is not his favorite city, but it has its charms. Blackjack, he said. Am I good? That's not the right question, he said. Is he lucky? Mr. Dolan leaned back in his chair at his conference table in his office high above the most famous arena in the world and took a hit off his nicotine vape. That, he said, is the right question. So thanks for listening. If you're not subscribed, uh, add this to your RSS feed and subscribe and um, appreciate you listening to the Power Law Podcast. Have a good one.